William or Harry? If Harry launched a bid for the throne, if there was a leadership contest as to who would be the next king, who would you choose? Maybe we can talk about it over supper, see if, if opinion is split down the middle. But here in 2 Samuel 15, we have a, a bid for the throne from someone who is not entitled to it. David is king. He, he's finally ruling after so many years on the run from Saul. Uh, and yet his own son Absalom is going to launch a challenge for the throne. And by the end of the chapter, David, who has already spent so many years on the run, will be on the run again. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from David's faith in this chapter and, and be warned about from Absalom's scheming. Uh, and those are things that, that we, we will look at this evening together. Uh, but there is something more going on here that I trust we'll see as well. And that is that God's anointed king is here betrayed by someone he trusted and rejected by the people. Uh, just uh, as Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss, so Absalom here, he, he, he gives out kisses to, to try and win people's hearts, uh, but he's scheming, he's betraying. And in all, all this, David points us forward so clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ, betrayed by one of his 12 disciples and rejected by the people he came to save. The chapter divides quite nicely into two halves and we'll look at it under two headings tonight. Seeing firstly the young pretender, the young pretender. Our, our current king is Charles III but the, there could have been a, a Charles III 200 uh, or more years ago. He was the grandson of James II. Uh, James II had been removed from the throne in 1688. Uh, but James's son, James, tried to regain the throne. That was the, the 1715 Jacobite rising. And then his son, Charles, tried to do the same thing in 1745. That would-be king who, who wanted to be Charles III is known to us as uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, but in his lifetime, he was known as the Young Pretender. Uh, pretender uh, being a reference to his claim to be king. And here in this chapter we have a young pretender. Bonnie Prince Charlie was born in exile in Rome. And here Absalom, as we saw in the last chapter, has just returned from exile. Uh, having uh, been in exile, having fled to escape justice after the cold-blooded murder of his brother Amnon. And as soon as Absalom is back, he gets to work, winning the hearts and minds of the people. It's all part of a plan to remove his father from the throne and become king himself. So what is Absalom's strategy? Because by looking at it, we can learn to, to beware of similar traits today, whether in others or, or even in ourselves. What's Absalom's strategy? Well, firstly, in verse 1, he cultivates his image. He gets himself a chariot and uh, horses and 50 men to run before him. 
In other words, he does what he can to try and start looking like a king. He tries to look like something he isn't and can't rightfully claim to be. But what a temptation that can be for us, whether on social media or in real life, to present an image to the world of the person that we'd like them to think we are or maybe the person we'd like to be, but which isn't real. And that's particularly easy to do if we don't have friends who know what we're really like. Lone Ranger Christians and Lone Ranger ministers often end up in trouble. Absalom cultivates his image and builds a following. The next thing Absalom does in verses 2 through 6 is to try and win the hearts and minds of the people. If it was today, he would have commissioned a, a Netflix series. He would have got a ghostwriter to pen his autobiography. And people would have watched it and read the book and said, I think he's actually all right. I think he's been hard done by. Everybody's just against him. In verse 2, he makes sure he's standing at the gate when anyone comes to the king to ask him to rule on a dispute. Absalom pretends to show an interest in them by asking where they're from. And then he says, your claims are good and right. And he says that every single time. It's not a verdict, it's just a script. For every single person who comes, your claims are good and right. Of course, if Absalom was really king, if he really had to make hard decisions, he would have had to to say no to some people. He, He... He would have had to make hard decisions. But because he's not in that position of responsibility, he can just say whatever he wants. It's so easy to say things when when you're not in the position of having to make decisions. And so beware if you hear people saying, well, well, the church should be doing this, this and this. or, Or if I was an elder, I would do that. Maybe the church should be doing X. Maybe that would be a good idea. But it's also very easy to say things like that when you don't have to weigh up pros and cons, when you don't have to take on board a legitimate range of views, or or when you know that there are many good options and you have to choose one out of many different options. Uh, There are those, uh, those in the church even who can be all talk, but who don't ever take on responsibility. Those who are quick to criticise but slow to get involved. Talk is cheap. And we see that here with Absalom. Because he can talk all day and he does talk all day about how much he would help people if only he was in charge. But he never actually helps anybody And beware of people like Absalom who will only ever tell you what you want to hear. It's also the case with Absalom that he's not just a flatterer, he's also just a liar. He says in verse 3, there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Uh, And people no doubt believe that because he was the king's son. But is that actually true? 
Because what have we just seen in the last chapter? Well, we've seen a woman come, pretend to be in mourning. uh, And she's come and she's been given an audience with the king. She's been allowed to come straight into the king and and, and speak to him. Now, perhaps David wasn't able to hear everyone himself. But we only have Absalom's word to say that David hadn't delegated others to listen to the cases that he couldn't. Uh, So Absalom's strategy is to say... Your case is right, but there's no one to hear it. And then to passionately and dramatically cry out, Oh, that I were judge in the land. He's like a a politician during an election campaign. Because a politician in an election campaign can promise you the world. But if they don't deliver on it once they're in power, well, there's not a lot you can do. It's easy to promise the world when you're not the governing power, not the governing party. It's easy to say, well, if only we were in power, things would be different. And Absalom has one more string to his bow in verse 5, and it's to pretend to be a man of the people. Whenever someone came near him to pay homage, to to bow down before him, perhaps Absalom instead reaches out and hugs them and kisses them. He he doesn't put on any airs or graces. Again, think of a a politician pictured in a a village pub with a pint or or with his wellies on, one foot up against the gate in a, a constituency field talking to a farmer. A man of the people. And there just happens to be plenty of cameras around to catch it. And again, it's easy for Absalom to do. He doesn't have any responsibilities keeping him busy. He can meet and greet people all day. And so he cultivates his image. He tells people what they want to hear. He lies about what David is actually doing to help people. And he pretends to be a man of the people. It's all very up to date. And then, as now, it often works. It often works, and it worked here. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's been doing the groundwork for his rebellion for years. And David seems oblivious to it all. And again, to apply this to the church... If our minds don't work the way Absalom's does, if we're not strategizing years in advance about what we're going to do, I think we can struggle to believe that others would. We we can struggle to believe that that an individual would ever join a church or, or a minister would ever join a denomination. And the whole time their strategy has been to ingratiate themselves with people, uh, to build up a bit of a following and then make a power grab. Especially if at the start they seem so lovely and personable and committed. We we just can't think that this was the plan from the start. I'm not saying we should be suspicious of people. Nor am I saying that every crisis in a church is a result of someone who's been scheming for years. Usually it's not. All I'm saying is that this does happen. Not just in the world but also in the church. Absalom had waited and schemed two full years to kill his brother and here he schemes and waits more years, a bit of a debate over over how many, perhaps four, uh, to make this 
power grab. And in verse 7, he finally makes his move. He lies to his father. He says that he's vowed a vow to the Lord. So he not only breaks the ninth commandment by lying, but he breaks the third commandment by taking God's name in vain. David gives his blessing to Absalom and goes to Hebron, the place where David had been anointed king. Absalom sends out secret messengers. He brings with him 200 men who are oblivious to what's happening. And he sends for David's right-hand man, Ahithophel. And the end of verse 12 is ominous. The conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, we know how the story ends. We know that the conspiracy is short-lived. We know that David will come back to the throne, but, but they didn't know how the story would end. The people with Absalom kept increasing. The conspiracy grew strong. And don't we feel like that in our own day, that the conspiracy has grown strong? Those seeking to push a, a humanistic, secular, anti-God agenda are on the rise and people are taken in by it. One of the major news stories this past week, to, to quote the BBC headline, uh, in a, a headline, a sort of, sort of thing you go back, not that long, it's sort of headline, it just wouldn't make sense uh, to people. Trans rapist to be moved from women's prison. Uh, the Shadow Home Secretary stated what should have been blindingly obvious from the beginning. It should be clear that if someone poses a danger to women and has committed crimes against women, they should not be being housed in a women's prison. Like, obviously. And yet it's not clear to many because the conspiracy has grown strong. And the people with the enemy keep increasing. Even including those who once worshipped with us, those who once served alongside us. As Absalom, no doubt, would have once worshipped alongside his father. It looks grim for David in 2 Samuel 15. And in many ways it looks grim for us in Europe and America. It is important to remember that this isn't the case everywhere. Missionaries in France report experiencing more openness to the gospel than they've ever seen before. In Iran, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1300 years. During the week I was in a Zoom meeting with a man in the Gambia who, who hopes to become part of our church there when it's established in May. Uh, he's working as an evangelist. He, he's a converted Muslim himself and he says there, there's a real openness to the gospel among Muslims in the Gambia. If our assessment of the Christian church is one of doom and gloom, it's probably because we're not looking at the worldwide picture but certainly in our own country and in many others, it looks like the conspiracy is growing strong and the people with the enemy keep increasing. And yet who is Absalom? He's a pretender. He's not the rightful king. And sooner or later the true king will come back. How do we know? 
Because God had made a promise to David that his kingdom would never end. And it's the same with Jesus' kingdom. One day, sooner or later, the true king will come back. The kingdom might look like it's in trouble. But one day, the true king will come back. And all pretenders to the throne will have to acknowledge him as the true king. And in the meantime, God, in his grace, gives us enough hope and encouragement to keep going. There are certain chapters in the Bible where they report real, real tough things, uh, real disasters in the lives of God's people. But they end with just this little, little note of hope. And we have that in 2 Samuel 15. It ends by, by telling us that Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now, Absalom entering Jerusalem is, is bad, bad, bad. Uh, but just in the nick of time, David's friend has got there first so that he can be in prime position to help David. It's a fact uh, to which Absalom is oblivious. It's not a significant verse in many ways, but it's, it's just enough to tell us that maybe all is not lost. Maybe God has a plan after all. It often looks bleak for Messiah's kingdom. David is God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's Christ. It often looks bleak for Messiah's kingdom, whether David's kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. But for those who have eyes to see, there are enough encouragements for us to keep going. And I think that is one of the rules of those of us who are ministers, that we would give our people enough encouragements to keep going. We don't invent the encouragements. They're there in God's word. They're there in God's world. And one of our jobs is to, to give you that encouragement from God to keep you going. So things look bleak, but there's a word of encouragement for those who have eyes to see it. So firstly, the young pretender. Secondly, God's weeping king. God's weeping king. I haven't counted them up. Uh, maybe you can later. But the word king appears a lot of times in the second half of this chapter. David is rarely called David. He, he's, he's pretty much always called the king. It's as if it's being emphasised that there is only one king, and it is not Absalom, but David. Surprisingly, David uses the word king to describe Absalom in verse 19. But to the narrator, uh, to the other characters in the story, the only king in this chapter is David. David is the Lord's anointed, not Absalom. Even... When David in the past had known that it was God's will for him to be king one day. Even after David had been anointed by Samuel. He refused to put out his hand and touch Saul. Because Saul was still the Lord's anointed. But Absalom has no such qualms. And now David has to leave the city of David He's a fugitive once again. He, he knows that if he and those closest to him don't leave, Absalom will have no mercy on them. Uh, 
There are quite a few different characters mentioned in chapters 15 and 16. And we'll come back to look at them next week, God willing. But do you notice what defines all these characters? What defines them all is their attitude to David. Just as what will define each of us for all eternity is our attitude to Jesus Christ. David, in this chapter, does not look like a a victorious king. He looks like a defeated king. Just as we worship a king who, in the world's eyes, he was crucified and that's it. He does not look like a victorious king. But what will define us forever is how we react to him now. And so the significant thing is how they react to David. And what we want to look at tonight is how David reacts to the adversity that God brings into his life. How does God's anointed react when trouble comes? And how should his people? Well, the first thing to notice about David's reaction is in verse 25, and it's that David acknowledges God's sovereignty. Leaving the city was never part of David's plan. He leaves weeping. It's hard not to be moved as we read verse 17. And and we we, we picture in our mind's eye David stopping at the last house. It's not a significant house other than it's, it's the last house before they leave Jerusalem. It will be his last sight of the city for, for who knows how long. David is hurting. That much is clear. And yet he's not frantic. He realises what must be done and he acts with the urgency that, that's needed. He knows they have to get out of there. But you don't get a sense that he's panicking. He knows in verse 25 that the Lord is ultimately behind what's happening. And so he realises that he's in the Lord's hand. If I find favour in the eyes of the Lord, he says, he will bring me back. In trouble, he looks to the Lord. And he prays to the Lord, verse 31. When he hears that Ahithophel is among the conspirators, he doesn't respond by giving vent to his anger or frustration. He doesn't start into personal attacks on Ahithophel. said, I knew he was useless. Sure, he did this, this and this. It's so predictable that he would do this. Instead, he simply responds by shooting an arrow prayer up to God. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Uh, And perhaps if we were quicker to do that when someone lets us down, rather than using our, our tongues to speak negatively about them, we would be much the better for it. If you're tempted this week to speak negatively about someone, why not just turn it into an arrow prayer to God instead. So what is it that helps David look to the Lord in all this? In this disastrous day for David. We could call this David's disastrous day. So, so what helps him look to the Lord? Well, it's because he knows that Absalom, with all his scheming, isn't sovereign. Only God is sovereign. 
And David didn't just know the truth of that in a general way, but specifically because after David sinned with Bathsheba, the Lord had told him through Nathan the prophet, Behold, I will raise evil against you out of your own house. And now that prophecy is being fulfilled. Evil has risen against David out of his own house. And it has been raised up by God just as he's promised. Now that doesn't excuse Absalom at all. He, Absalom has killed his brother. He would have no qualms about killing his father as well. And yet God, not Absalom, is ultimately in charge. When we read in verse 12 that the conspiracy had grown strong. It sounds quite like Second Thessalonians chapter 2 where, where Paul talks about those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. And that as a result God sends them a, a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. So we have a, a strong conspiracy in the Old Testament and a strong delusion in the New. And, and yet behind both of them is God. Both in the Old Testament and the New, people are responsible for their own wickedness. But God is also sovereign. And of course there's nowhere we see that more clearly than at the cross. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men and so if you meet someone and they struggle with the idea of the sovereignty of God I think we have to take them to the cross because that's where we see it most clearly And if God was sovereign even over that act of unspeakable wickedness at the cross, you can be sure that nothing that comes into your life this week will be a mistake. David, in his trouble, acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty. The second thing we see about David is that he refuses to try and use God for his own personal ends. He refuses to try and use God for his own personal ends. Absalom is a bit here like a US president who will talk about God, who will attend church, who will hold up a Bible. Uh, and it's all just to try and get the evangelical vote. Uh, and, and often it works. In, in verse 7, Absalom talks about having vowed a vow to the Lord. But as we've seen, it's all a sham. Absalom will use God, or try to at least, but David absolutely refuses to try and use God. We see that in verse 24 when Zadok the priest and the Levites come with the Ark of the Covenant. And if that rings a bell, uh, the idea that there's a disaster happening so we better bring the Ark of the Covenant onto our side... If that rings a bell, uh, you might be remembering 1 Samuel chapter 4 when Israel was defeated by the Philistines. And how did they react? Did they, did they pray? Did they examine themselves? Did they repent? No. They said, we know what's wrong. We didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant and then everything will be okay. They said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Uh, and it was rabbit foot theology. 
Yeah. It was an attempt to use God and his ark as a lucky charm. Because surely God wouldn't let the ark be captured. But David, for his part, absolutely refuses to try and use God. So how might we try and use God? Well, I think that perhaps the biggest danger for most of us is the one Kyle was talking about this morning. And that is using Jesus as a ticket to heaven. When Kyle was speaking, I was thinking about the, the tickets that we had for a Northern Ireland match at the European Championships in 2016. Uh, and all the way from here to France, those tickets were, were closely guarded. Uh, I don't know how many times a day that I would have checked to make sure we had the tickets. Because if those tickets had been lost, then the whole trip would have been in vain. But once the match is over, it didn't matter if we kept the tickets or not. Yeah, they're a nice souvenir but we wouldn't have panicked if we couldn't find them. Because the match itself was the main event. The ticket was just a means to an end. But the true believer doesn't look at Jesus that way. Because Christ is all. And we say like Job. Though he slay me. Yet will I hope in him. David refuses to use God. Verse 26. But if he says I have no pleasure in you. Behold here I am. Let him do what seems good to me. He will cast himself on God. And accept the outcome. And not try and force God's hand. And the outcome is. That God does take pleasure in David. As God tells us that he takes pleasure. In all his own. The final thing we want to say about David's reaction to his adversity is David's tears. David's tears. And that's the image I want to leave you with tonight. Firstly, because it shows that it's okay to weep. David weeps and the people weep. Some Christians might want to say to us, well, we'll man up. But the Bible says to us, weep with those who weep. And particularly they're weeping over the state of God's kingdom. Is David sad because he's lost his position? Uh, Maybe like Liz Truss uh, unexpectedly exiting uh, Downing Street after such a short time. Uh, Well everything we've seen about David uh, even tonight it shows us that he isn't a man desperately trying to preserve his own prestige by any means possible. He's not trying to cling on to power. Rather David's biggest concern is God's honour. And the people uh, for their part they weep not just because of affection for David though no doubt they had plenty of that. But they weep because the people have by and large rejected God's king. And do we not look out at our own nation in the same way? There is a place for denunciation. There is a place for prophetic rebuke. But prophets like Jeremiah rebuked their nation with tears in their eyes. It's been said that some Christians respond to the cultural insanity with angry tirades and name-calling that do nothing further 
that do nothing to further the cause of Christ, but many weep as Jeremiah did for the fate of people who have been deceived by the evil one. But of course, Jeremiah isn't the greatest example of, of a weeping prophet in the Bible, is he? I, I mean, he's, he is a good example, but, but there's an even greater example. Because the Bible tells us of someone other than David weeping on the Mount of Olives. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and better David. David here in verse 30 is going up the Mount of Olives away from Jerusalem. Jesus in Luke 19 is going down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. And when he sees that city, the same city that had driven David out a thousand years before, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Do we look at our unbelieving world the way David looked at, the way Jesus looked at Jerusalem? And so Jesus weeps, just like David did. But Jesus does more than David. Because David can only weep. But Jesus can do more. Jesus would once again ascend the Mount of Olives. This time to a garden called Gethsemane. And there again he would be in distress. As he faced his own departure. Just as David was rejected by the city of David, so the Lord Jesus was rejected by the world that he had made. He came to his own and his own received him not. And yet in God's plan, his rejection would mean life for the world. Because Jesus would rise from prayer in that garden and go to the cross in order to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and through his death bring us life. Amen. Well, we'll close tonight with the words of Psalm 119, part 17a. Psalm 119, part 17a. Again, this theme of weeping, again foreshadowed in David uh, but ultimately in Christ uh, Psalm 119 part 17a it's page 311 and especially verse 4 your face make on your servant shine and teach me all your statutes way down from my eyes flow floods of tears for men that your law do not obey Psalm 119 part 17a